When I think about faith and religion, I think about a specific set of morals that I have chosen to live by. And those morals extend to all parts of my life, not just some, even my political views. Simply put, I've chosen to love others. But for some, it's not that easy. Their faith and their beliefs have led them to make decisions that put themselves first and their needs. Because there came a time that the goal of religion was to have power and to use that power to fulfill your own wants and needs, just like in politics. So how do we use our faith and our religious practices to influence our political beliefs in a positive way? Well, my guest today is the epitome of that. Dr. Cornell West has a passion for communicating to a wide variety of people in order to keep the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. alive, a legacy of telling the truth and bearing witness to love and justice. He does this by allowing his faith and his belief in Jesus to guide him politically and govern his life. Because to him, justice is what love looks like in public. This is We Need to Talk, Faith and Politics, Part 1. Dr. Cornell West, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I'm truly honored to talk with you today. Well, I want to salute you for being such a force for good that Anahita, my beloved wife, sings your praises. I believe every word, and I'm always open to uh, learning and listening from wise and courageous persons like yourself. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I have uh, I've been a consumer of your words and your work for a very long time, and I'm really grateful for your voice and your perspective. And one of the main reasons that I wanted to chat with you is because I'm doing this series on faith and politics. And I love how you approach your political stances from a place of faith, because I do as well. And I've been a Christian my whole life. I grew up in the church and I've been a very liberal progressive Christian. And my interpretation of of Jesus has always been one of progress, which is why I landed on the progressive side. And we know in general that a lot of people's faith journeys do find their way into their political stances. And sometimes that does more harm, but sometimes it can do a lot of good as you are an example of that. So for you in your journey of being an intellectual, being a progressive and being a Christian, how have you managed to find a healthy intersection between your faith and your political stances? Mm, Appreciate the question. You know, I always begin by uh, noting the gratitude that I have to those who came before So when I think of some of the best human beings I've ever met in my life, I met in my family, I met in Shiloh Baptist Church, I met in Martin Luther King Jr.'s witness, I met in Fannie Lou Hamer's witness and Ida B. Wells Barnett's witness. Uh, There's so many towering figures who I try to build on, who are serious Christians, who are genuine followers of Jesus Christ, who connect the love that he enacted on that cross to the love of the least of these, not in the sense of imposing on them, but but of emptying oneself in service to them. Mm. And so in that sense, I always begin with examples. I begin with Jesus as the ultimate example. God come into time and space with a love so overwhelming that, that God is able to go through unbelievable rejection, humiliation, crucifixion mm-hmm. with this love flowing. And then 
Y'all think of mom and dad, Irene and Cliff, and so many of my brothers, a strong Christian, and then you get to the intellectuals uh, uh, who were uh, like, like Martin King and, and the others who were Christian. I said, I, I want to be like them. Mm. I think that they set the highest standards in that way. You know, it's like if, if I want to be a singer, I want to be like Aretha. I'm not going to imitate her, but I know what the standard is. Yeah. You, see, you see what I mean? So, so to live a life, I want to know what the standards are. If I'm going to sing a song, okay, I want that King Cole. He set the standards. I can like some others, but I know what it is to be the greatest. And Jesus was the greatest, and the greatest yeah. is always he or she who renders service to the least of these. Amen. I love that view. And it, it strikes me because I feel like, especially in the last few years, there has been a huge disparity on what being a Christian means, right? And on both sides. And I've personally found myself really frustrated with that because I feel like I've gotten to the point where, one, being a Black woman, I feel like I already have to defend my identity often. But then being a Christian, I also feel like I have to defend my identity. And it's it's disheartening because you want to always do the best that you possibly can. But there are, at least from my perspective, you see people that have co-opted the Christian faith that it's so very apparent they are not walking the way that Jesus would want them to. So for you and from your vantage point, when did you start to see that there was kind of this gross misinterpretation of what being a Christian means? Well, one is that uh, hypocrisy is always built into the very structure of who we are and what human history is. Mm -hmm. Uh, that the, it, what the great Howard Thurman, the teacher of Martin Luther King Jr., called the hounds of hell, which is fear, greed, hatred, hypocrisy. And they're connected to domination, oppression, exploitation. Now, those hounds of hell are at work on the battlefield of our own souls. So we got to fight against the greed. That's why Paul, Paul says Christians must die daily. How do you attempt to kill the greed, the hatred, the hypocrisy? But all of us have it. That's what it is to be a Christian, to acknowledge we're fallen in that right. way. But we also have access to a grace. And that grace empowers us. It's a power granted in us that enables us to attempt to push it back. And that's why we need each other. That's why we need community. That's why we need ritual to be reminded over and over again. That's why we need communion. Remember me yeah. because I forgave those hounds of hell inside of you, those sins that you commit. And I want you to hate sin. I want you to hate injustice. I want you to hate oppression, but I want you to love the sinner. I want mm. you to love the human beings who are doing it. Why? Because they can change. Now, love doesn't mean like. You're not liking the clan. No. We recognize the Klan is sick, they're pathological, they're white supremacists, they're gangsterous, they're thuggish. But as human beings, they still made the image of God and a Klansman can actually end up moving in John Brown's direction, mm. who died for black people. Or can move the way LBJ, who grew up a white supremacist, who became a very important force against white supremacy once he was president. So that change and transformation is always always open. It's like when I was in Charlottesville with, with some real sick brothers, I'm telling you, the Nazi and the Klan there in Virginia. And I was having one of the dialogues because they was listening to Motown. I said, you know, I find that a little strange y'all 
listening to black music and want to murder black people like myself mm. or want to crush us. You know, I said, ooh, that's very American. It's mixed up. It's contradictory. But the guy said, I can't understand why you call everybody brother and you calling me brother. I said, that's right. I said, because Jesus loves you just like Jesus loves me. Mm. Jesus died for you just like Jesus died for me. He looked at me and his, his, his friend kind of grabbed him. Oh, no, don't, 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 don't get involved in that. Like, like you know, we, we, we're going to have a conversation now because he hadn't been exposed to that. No, I knew I wouldn't necessarily be persuasive on the spot. I'm just bearing witness. Yeah. So I know what Jesus did for me. And I was a gangster before I met Jesus, and now I'm a redeemed sinner with gangster proclivities. So Jesus can deal with any gangster. <laughs> Jesus can deal with any thug. I've taught in prison for 44 years. Yeah. And I got a whole lot of testimony from the brothers, most of them black and brown, how Jesus changed their life. Now I got a lot of lovely Muslim brothers and sisters, got other stories, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I said, but I'm just bearing witness in that right. way. So from the very beginning, for me, I knew hypocrisy is built in. So the question became, how will I live in the world, but not of the world? How will I be transformed and transformative rather than conform to the war world and just adjust to the evils of the world? So yeah. we're Christian soldiers, Christian soldiers. Yeah. So the church is always going to be full of hypocrites. The church is always accommodating the injustice. The church is always too afraid rather than bold because once you once you washed in the blood of the cross you are a free man mm. a woman you are not afraid matthew 10 three times jesus said what be not afraid be not afraid be not afraid yes. but we're free we're not afraid people can't intimidate us we're not walking around scared all the time yeah yeah we got tied to a power that's greater than all the mighty forces of the world. So you say, hey, shoot. So I can see all the hypocrisy in the world. No evil surprises me. No despair will paralyze me because I've got a grace. I got a joy. I got a faith and a hope and a love the world didn't give me and the world can't take away. Amen. And, you know, I, I love that story about you engaging with people, you know, in terms of what the music that they listen to, but it's, it's the same color of the people that they oppose because from a faith-based standpoint, I think that's what makes the journey almost harder to reach across the aisle because you're always trying to say, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus treat these people? Because all those people that crucified Jesus hated him, but he still loved them. He asked for forgiveness for them on the cross. And that's what we're trying to do, but it's so hard. So for people that are struggling, trying to reach across the aisle, how do you suggest that they start to have those conversations? Even if they don't ever get to a place of common ground with people on the other side, how do you start having those conversations? You just let folk know that I'm looking at the world through the lens of the cross, which means I'm looking at the world through the lens of love. Mm. And this love will make no sense whatsoever if you look at it through the lens of the world, it's just not going to make no sense. It's absurd. It's absurd. Yeah. The very notion that you could love your way through the grimness and dimness of the world makes no sense without grace. It makes no sense without Christ's witness. It makes no sense without a God who comes into the world based on an overwhelming love in order for the world to be able to see what is most important in the world and in one's life, which is love. Yeah. 
And most people who are even atheists would agree with that. See, a lot of our atheist brothers and sisters, a lot of our agnostic brothers and sisters, oh, we understand y'all about the love stuff. You don't have to bring Jesus in. You don't have to bring God in. But it's true. The most fundamental force in the world is to love and be loved. But love is a form of death, which means something got to die in you in order for the new being to emerge. Even when they mm. fall in love, mm. they fall in love with somebody, narcissistic self, got to be pushed aside a little bit for that broader self connecting with another person now in a love relationship. And you feel new. You know, with stylistics, say you make me feel brand new. They telling the truth. <laughs> they telling the truth. Now, what is distinctive, though, Sister Melinda, this is where... Uh, uh, you know, we have to be delicate, but we also have to tell the truth. And that is, there's never been a people who has been so chronically hated for 400 years, mm. who has taught the world so much about love, how to love, and what love can do. Amen to that. Yeah. And it's not a question of our skin pigmentation. We are beautifully black, but skin pigmentation without spiritual formation Skin pigmentation without ethical cultivation, skin pigmentation without loving, courageous action means you're just a subject to becoming a black, lukewarm person, black thug, black gangster. Yeah. Just like you got white gangsters and white thugs and brown mm -hmm. gangsters and, mm -hmm. and, and, and Asian and indigenous. It's a human thing. But what was it about these black people that in the face of being hated, for our bodies, our minds, our hearts, who we are, that we could keep dishing out. John Coltrane's Love Supreme, and Stevie Wonder's Love and the Need of Love, and James Baldwin's Love Soak Essays, and Tony Martin. Tony Martin's Catholic. He's Christian. Be loved. We can go on and on and on. That the love train that we have created, both artistically, because our music is disproportionately shaping every music in the world. Yeah. That's why yeah. We're, we're world historical people in that sense. But also in terms of our relations with each other, the church that you, what, what's the name of the church you grew up in? Called Harmony. Well, the church I grew up with, St. Paul AME, and the church that I'm at now that I serve in is called Harmony Toluca Lake. Yeah, I come out of Shiloh, Baptist church. Same tradition, you know, different denominational expression, but same tradition. Mm -hmm. And it's one in which, you know, we were told over and over again, this hatred coming out of you is devilish. Never succumb to it, but don't let it push you in the gutter in such a way that you end up just as thuggish as the people who hate you. Mm. Huh. That's profound. And it wasn't yeah. just said, it was lived. You see, black people at our best, we live that. That's where Martin Luther King comes from. He's a wave in an ocean. He ain't no isolated voice. Right. He come out of Benjamin Mays. He come out of Alberta. His mother. He come. All these things feed in. He come out of Coretta. His wife and so yeah. forth. Pushing him, loving him, criticizing him, embracing him, and so forth. And that's who we are at our best as a people. Yeah. Yeah. As a, we're losing it, which is which is sad. I mean, that's another another question in terms yeah. of how that. How market and, and has taken over and uh, worldly success rather than spiritual greatness is uh, is moving toward the center of, of who we think it is to be mm. human. We're losing our spirituality. Uh, we're losing our music. You know, the music is just so dumbed down and flattened out.
that uh, the deep love, the delicacy, the intimacy, the uh, the soulfulness, the sweetness, the kindness, the gentleness, the tenderness that was in our music is no longer there. Yeah. The way it used to be. And it's yeah. not decisions made by oligarchs in the recording industry, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about that and like progression, yeah, that no, time, I, whether it's better I, or not. But one thing I do want to kind of uh, piggyback on that you said that made me think about Black culture and Black people as a whole, just, you know, looking back at the 400 years that you talked about the, of things that our people have been through, the amount of empathy I think that we have as a people is really astounding. And one thing I've also noticed when we're looking at the church, for example, is that a majority of Black churches are more likely to talk about social justice issues from the pulpit than white churches and evangelical churches. And I, I, I think it's very apparent why that is, but I'd love to hear from your viewpoint why you think that is. Yeah, I think it's because we have a deeper understanding of the gospel. I mean, the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer, two PhDs in theology, 23 years old. He goes to Union Theological Seminary. And when he goes to Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem on 138th Street, he says, I heard the gospel proclaimed for the first time. He's 20, 24 years old. Hmm. First time, which means love connected to justice. Justice what love looks like in public. But the tenderness of what love feels like in private, too. So he underwent a transformation. He becomes a vanilla brother who works under Adam Clayton Powell Sr., the father of the more famous Adam Clayton Powell Jr. So I think it, we've had black folk who have been willing to muster the courage to take a risk and to proclaim the full gospel. Now, on the other hand, we think about white brothers and sisters. We have to recognize that it's in no way homogeneous, that if we were go to a church of Quakers, they talk about social justice all the time. Mm-hmm. Mennonites, yeah. Yeah. they talk yeah. about social justice all the time. You see, Now, of course, you got prophetic elements within the Episcopal Church, prophetic elements within the Presbyterian Church. But the larger elements in those churches accommodated themselves to vicious forms of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. And I would say the same thing about empire, you know, thinking that an American life has more value than a life in Vietnam or a life in the Congo or a life in Nigeria or a life in, 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 in Guatemala. You see, for Christians, you know, all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God so that every flag is under the cross. Yeah. You're going to put the cross under the flag so that Jesus has to defer to nationalism. Jesus got to defer to Congress. No, 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 no. Jesus sets the standard for every nation. Yes. And that cross stands for unarmed truth. And the condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. It stands for unapologetic love. And what does that mean? That means you're going to get in a whole lot of trouble. That's why <laughs> Jesus talked about enemies. Anybody who follows Jesus, you got to get ready to have a whole lot of enemies. And you never allow your enemies to define what your project is. You keep your eye on the kingdom. Yes, absolutely. I love that. Oh, you, oh, it's yeah. true, though. I mean, Jesus you keep did your eye things up. On he wasn't there to be peaceful. That's right. And he, he didn't say, I want you to follow the world. He said, I want you to follow me. Yeah. And we learned in Shiloh Baptist Church that the kingdom of God is within you. And everywhere you go, you ought to leave a little heaven behind. <laughs> when you leave in heaven behind in a hellish world, you're going to get in trouble. 
That's what all that's what our that's what our ancestors have weighed in the water. God gonna trouble the water. Yeah. Remember that? Yep. 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 Exactly right. Yep. No, indeed. You gonna you, you gonna create some some what Brother Lewis, John Lewis called good trouble. Yes. I recently read an article where you talked about that you think the left needs more Jesus. And I found that really compelling because um, I have noticed, especially over the last few years, that there are less and less religiously affiliated Democrats and progressive in general. They're just progressive for the sake of being progressive, but there's no faith behind it. And I, I of course, respect everybody's journey, you know, whatever they choose, whatever works from them. But why do you think there are so many less Christians represented in the Democratic Party than there are on the right? Well, I think that a certain kind of secularism has has taken hold. And like you say, we love our secular brothers and sisters. Uh, we just think that they uh, uh, that, that Jesus adds something deep. Because see, I think everybody needs Jesus. I mean, mm-hmm. the left needs it. The center needs it. The left <laughs> needs. I mean, Trump needs Jesus. <laughs> Communist Party needs Jesus. And it's, it's simply for me, Jesus is the fleshification of the truth. Mm. You see, and, and and there is a truth in love, just like there ought to be a love of truth. And therefore, everybody needs access to something bigger than their egocentric predicament so that they're able to allow elements of their self to flow in service to other people. Mm-hmm. And that there's joy in that service to other people. And joy is qualitatively different than pleasure. We live in a market-driven secular society. So people think the highest achievements is success and pleasure. I think that's spiritually empty. Mm -hmm. I think spiritual greatness is always greater than worldly success. I think that joy in serving others is always deeper than just pleasure. And I'm not against pleasure. I'm not a Puritan, you know. So I'm a Christian, but not a Puritan in that (laughs) sense. Right. Pleasure has its role in so Right, right. But the joys that we talk about, the joys of your children and your loved ones and your mom and daddy, that's not pleasure. Yeah. That's joy at the deepest level, you see. Mm. And, 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 and what, what, what being a follower of Jesus is all about is access to that. I mean, I would, I would have your audience read uh, um, Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited. Uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship uh, uh, and James Baldwin the fine next time. Mm-hmm. James Baldwin's agnostic, but he's so Christian saturated. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Down at the cross. He down at the cross. That second essay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, my savior died. Oh, he's right there. Yeah, I love that. And I, and I mentioned before, but you know, people's religious beliefs, they do find their way into their political stances with how they vote, who they support, and all of that. Right. Do you think, though, that it does more harm than good when there really isn't a separation of church and state? Well, I think there always should be a separation of the state from every religious institution, because I don't think that theocracies, or I don't think uh, uh, to treat a fellow citizen differently because they have a different religious faith than I do. Mm. So I want to fight as a Christian for the right of non-Christians to be treated fairly and justly before mm. the courts and schools and right across the board. You see what I mean? So yes, that's yeah. the state needs to stand in and of itself 
equally justly with any church, mosque, synagogue, temple, whatever it is. But that doesn't mean that we Christians can't bear witness right. to the, 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 the love and joy within us. But it just means that we want to make sure that Muslims and atheists and Buddhists and Hindus are treated in exactly the same way we are before the state. Yeah. So in yeah. terms of you know access to jobs and so forth, health care and what have you, you see, very much so. But I think what also is happening is that, um, see, commodification is probably the largest dominant process in the country, if not the world. Money, 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 buying and selling, making it, getting over with financial ending. And we understand that everybody needs money, everybody needs resources. Right. But when it becomes idolatrous, and we're living in a profoundly idolatrous country, idolatrous culture, the great Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel used to say, if you view life like a gold rush, you end up worshiping the golden calf. Right. Yeah. And when you worship the golden calf, the golden rule becomes he who has the gold rules. Mm. Whereas the golden rule is do unto others. Yeah. You have others to do unto you. That's spiritual. That's moral. Yes. Yes. Golden yes. calf, the gold rush, not a moral dimension to it. It's gangster all the way through. I'm going to get what I want. I say what I, whatever I say and do, no accountability whatsoever. I'll get away with it. You see, that's gangster. And no regard for others. No regard, exact, no sensitivity, no concern. And that runs into a dead end. Every gangster, every thug runs into a dead end. Sooner or later, no matter how much money, no matter how big they mansion is, how, how grand their car is, that they run into a, a dead end because there's always bigger gangsters. Yeah. And there's no joy on the inside. Yeah. And the worst hell of any human being is to lose the capacity to love. Mm. Dostoevsky talks about that in the Brothers Karamazov. He says, hell, Ivan, is those who suffer from the incapacity to love. Wow. wow. See, that's what our folk understood. Black folk way back on the plantation, fighting against the lynchers and so forth and so on, say, you know what? We got a life wisdom. And many of us learn this because of our relationship with a Palestinian Jew named Jesus that says nobody's going to crush our capacity to love, beginning with the love of our children, the love of our mamas and daddies, the love of other folk in our neighborhood on the chocolate side. And that chocolate love spills over to loving vanilla brothers and sisters, loving indigenous people. But you got to love yourself. Jesus tells us, love thy neighbor as thyself. Yes. Yes. We talk yes. to hate ourselves, then we're not going to love anybody because we don't even love ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very much so. Well, Thank the beautiful you. thing is your generation has people like you. I'm telling you. I'm, because there's love warriors, freedom fighters, wounded healers, and joy spreaders. That's the great ones among us. Mm. That's the yes. great. Every generation, that's the great ones among us. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Who's spreading the joy? Who's fighting for freedom? Who's in, in, in involved in a war for love? And in, in the end, you know, who is always wounded, scarred, and bruised 
but it's in the healing business. And that's an important part, the healing. And I think that when you're talking about, you know, our people as a whole, we found ways to heal without needing other people to be a part of that healing. And that's what makes us so resilient and so strong. And we always have joy. Always have joy. Always. With our bodies, the way we walk, talk, sense of humor, the laughter. I mean, Moms Mabel and Richard Pryor ain't no joke. <laughs> they are geniuses. They yes. ain't no geniuses. And yes. we know it in everyday life. Our families yeah. around the Round the turkey and Thanksgiving, all the laughter, the chuckling, the grins. And when you lose that, because that's part of spirituality too, when you lose that, uh, that's a sign of nihilism. That's a sign mm. of uh, spiritual decay and deterioration that leads toward suicide, self-destruction, self-flagellation, self-violation and that's what we're seeing too much of my dear sister yeah not yeah. just in the black community but around the country but around, yeah absolutely i do want to go back to because it's it's by far one of the, my favorite things that you've ever said that justice is what love looks like in public and when i first heard that it just struck me to my core it stopped me in my tracks and it's such a beautiful way to explain what love th thy neighbor is that's what I loved about that statement. So I would just love to know where that came from. Well, it probably comes from, uh, Rhino Niebuhr probably comes from Martin King. Because Rhino Niebuhr used to say, any justice that's only justice soon degenerates into something less than justice. Mm -hmm. Only something deeper than justice can sustain justice. What is that which is deeper than justice? Love. Mm -hmm. And so King had a similar formulation about love itself without powers, anemic power without love is amoral. And so when you talk about love and justice, they're not identical. They are inseparable. Mm. Mm. That's the key. Yeah. But if you have only justice, it's just like if all you have is just being woke. If you woke forever, then you're going to suffer from insomnia forever. Because being a freedom fighter and a love warrior is about being fortified. Yes. Jesus wants us to put on the full armor. That's what Paul says to the Ephesians in the sixth chapter. Put on the full armor so that you can't just talk about justice if you don't have deep love for the people, a deep care for the people, deep concern for the people. If it's only justice, that can be weaponized for your career. That can be weaponized for your next professional opportunity. You ain't really loving the people. You're just using the language in order to pursue your own individual career. That, that 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 needs to call, be called into question. Mm. I'm with Ashford and Simpson, you know, Nick and, and Valerie. They, they ain't nothing like the real <laughs> thing. Yeah. And the real thing is the love, <laughs> the concern, the care, and always the sacrifice. Mm. What are you willing that. to pay for? That, that's the thing. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No. There's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. Yes. So that cross becomes so very important, bearing that cross, bearing the burden, denying oneself, and then serving, and then being able to bear witness over time for a lifetime. So you're a marathoner when you understand justice is what love looks like in public. So you're mm. a marathoner. This ain't mm. no choice. Well, nice little lifestyle for two or three years. You know, just staying woke for three or four years and yeah. going back 
<laughs> to your career. And no, 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 no. Uh-uh. You are able to see things yes. different. I was told in Shiloh Baptist Church, we want to see Jesus more clearly, follow Jesus more dearly, love Jesus more dearly. That's the thing. And that's a lifetime. Yeah. That's a yeah. calling. We will be faithful unto death because we have been transformed by a grace that we will bear witness to. It's a beautiful thing. You know Walter Hawkins' great song, What Is This? Yes. I feel so <laughs> deep inside. What is this? This fire. Whatever it is, it won't let me hold my peace. Ooh, Walter <laughs> understood what that gospel's about in terms of that fire. And that fire spills over into progressive politics, but the politics is a consequence yeah. of our relation with Jesus. It's mm-hmm. a consequence of our faith and our love and our hope. It flows out of it. When Jesus ran out the money changers, that wasn't just a progressive act. He did it in the name of poor people. That, right. that Remember, that temple was the biggest edifice East of Rome, all between Rome and Asia, there were 500 troops in front of that thing. He got little ragtag disciples, <laughs> and he got 500 troops. You got bankers on the one side, and you got the intellectuals, rationalized the bankers on the other, and he goes right to the section where the poor people are being exploited most and runs the money changers out. That's why he was crucified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why they put him on the cross, the Roman Empire? Killed him as a political criminal. And he said, well, Jesus, are you a political criminal? Are you a king? He said, well, I'm just following my father's will, y'all. You don't understand. Don't try to reduce me to this. Christians are the same way. Oh, are you primarily a progressive? Well, it flows out of my relation with Jesus. It flows out of my faith, my joy, my concern for the least of these, the prisoners and and indigenous people have been mistreated and poor whites and women who are being mistreated with patriarchy, the gays and lesbians who are being spit on and trans, precious trans folk who are being spit on. We, we, we love everybody. Yeah. We love everybody. They, by our fruits, you shall know us. What are our fruits? How deep is your love, your compassion tied to fighting for justice? See, that's a great tradition. Yes, yes. It makes me think of that song that they, they will know we are Christians by our love. Ooh, that's it. Yeah. Yes. You see, we live in a, in, a, in a culture where it's the foliage and not the fruits. Mm. The, the, the primary criteria. What you look like. What kind of spectacle. What is your brand? Christians don't have a brand. We got a cause. Mm. Kingdom of God ain't no brand. The blood at the cross transforming my life don't turn me into no brand. Turns me into a follower of Jesus. A disciple of that Jesus Christ. You see, it, and so everybody says, well, you know, Sister Marilyn, Brother Courtney, everybody got a brand because in the market culture, that's the only way you find your niche in the market. You say, you call it what you want. But I know we, our language is kingdom of God, bear witness, love, justice. Yeah. Yep. And it's that simple too. It does. It's not complicated. That's true. Isn't that the truth? People like to make it so complicated and so forth. You know, say, quit being so greedy. Quit being so <laughs> hateful. Quit being so hypocritical. 
it's it's super simple and i say that all the time <laughs> jesus was very very straightforward with with what he taught and what his trajectory was and how different do you think this country would be if the true trajectory and teachings of jesus were used to influence our political environment well one is we wouldn't have any poverty <laughs> we'd have a prison system that stayed in contact with the humanity of human beings, such that rehabilitation would be at the center, because everybody is going to be, do something wrong, and some folk are going to do something that's so wrong that it demands some kind of a focus and targeting, but rehabilitation would be massive. You wouldn't have 1% of the population that owns 42% of the wealth, because that's a function of greed. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You got these precious brothers and sisters out here homeless, some of them mentally challenged with no care. And yeah, you got folks yeah. running around living in the lap of luxury with so many houses they can't keep track of them and, and so much money they can't they, they can't count it. You see, that that's that that that's not that's not the uh, uh, what it means to to focus on Jesus of Nazareth. It yeah. just isn't. It just isn't. And that's just the beginning. We haven't got the foreign policy yet and the militarism and dropping bombs on innocent folk and thinking yeah. that somehow drop a bomb in Pakistan and say, oh, that human being was collateral damage. No, that human being was made in the image of God just like you, just like me. They got a mom and a daddy just like you and me who love them. They have value, significance, and a sanctity and dignity. So we got to look at militaristic policies that think that that's just the norm. You see? And we haven't got to the, the issues of empire yet. So in that way, I think that uh, it would be, we'd really be a, a qualitatively different society and culture. We really would. When we're talking about greed, because I have a huge issue with um, really popular mega churches. It's, it's something that I've, it, it frustrates me. I don't, I don't really know any other way to, to right, describe no, I it, right? I understand but my sister. How, so the, it's kind of a two-part question. One, how do you think those churches were able to get to that point? And why do you think the people that claim to be of Christian faith that continue to give, give, give to those churches don't see how this is the opposite of what Jesus stood for? Mm, it's a wonderful question. Wonderful question. You know, we got to remember that uh, one of the biggest bestsellers in the history of American culture was written by Bruce Barton in 1925 called, uh, um, it was basically, it was on Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ as a businessman. Hmm. He's concerned about coming up with strategies of how to sell this, how to sell that, how do you sell this message and so forth. See, America is such a market-driven civilization. Yeah. The business of America has been business. America was a corporation before it was a country when it came to looking for gold and resources, indigenous people's land and pushing them back in barbaric ways. And so the prosperity gospel is just a new version of the market gospel. Hmm. And the market intensified after 19, 1970s in the deep economic crisis where the market was unleashed. They used to have strong regulation. They used to regulate TV. You know, they, they couldn't have certain shows once the kids got home. Yeah. Reagan deregulated television, put anything on TV. And that was just one sign of deregulating everything. So the market devoured, commodification devoured, buying and selling became the dominant mentality across the board. So in a market culture like that, you're going to get market religion. In a culture obsessed with prosperity as a God, you're going to get prosperity gospel. Mm. 
Mm. Now, it's idolatrous, it's truncated, it's narrow, but it sells. And so even you got the, the model itself, Reverend, Reverend Willie P. Cook, my pastor. Oh, he was a great man. He was a great, great man. Then went to college, two colleges went through him. Mm. He was a pastor, he wasn't a CEO. See, now these big mega churches, the pastors brag about being CEOs. You say, why would you brag about being head of a market model? CEOs, CEOs are not known for their love and joy and service and sacrifice for the least of these. But you're supposed to be a representative of Jesus on the earth. Mm. A CEO? Please. And the choirs become more praise teams that want to titillate and stimulate and look for the next record label deal rather than sing songs to touch the souls of the folk who are out there because the notes that they sing become some of the pillars upon which these people live their lives. Mm -hmm. And the measure of their song is not going to be how big their deal is and how much titillation. It's going to be the nourishment and caring of the precious souls of the folk who are coming into the church to keep the bread of life fresh, not stale, fresh. And one of the quickest ways you make bread of life stale is just keep it on the market for a long time hmm. and sell it under any conditions. Hmm. Well, that's what's happened. So that the blood at the cross becomes Kool-Aid. All you got to do is just dip in and get your blessing, dip in and get your next. Then the blessing is usually a commodity. He said, no, no, Jesus said that. I, I, I'm not providing these commodities. I'm not providing responds to petitions prayers are prayers of praise that ask for us to have the strength to climb the mountains of life to confront the catastrophes of life jesus doesn't say i'm going to remove all of the mountains i'm going to remove all the catastrophes no i will be with you in your catastrophes when you're working with it when your mama dies i'll be there when your friend betrays you, I will be there. When you lose your job, I will be there. I will be there with you till the end of the world. That's part of the Christian promise. But in prosperity gospel, it's all market. Mm. PR. You see what I mean? Yeah. And when you ask these churches, what kind of prison ministry do they have? See, I've taught in prison for 44 years, and I've seen the brothers wrestling. We started with just a few hundred thousand. Now we got millions, right? And you see, and the brothers said, damn, well, we don't see too many folk from these big churches. I thought 25th chapter Matthew said, what you do unto the prisoners, you do unto me. What you do to the least of these, you do unto me. How come they prison ministries so weak as pre-sweet and Kool-Aid, mm -hmm. but they build and fun is breaking records every six months. And they CEO pastors driving new cars every year or two. And we're not talking about Volkswagens which is what my pastor had for over 33 years. And I know that's a high standard. I'm not saying that pastors all be driving around in Volkswagens. But, <laughs> but they don't need private jets. They don't need private jets and Bentleys. Now, I can tell you that right now. <laughs> not in the name of Jesus. In their own names, that's fine. But not you in the name what? of Jesus. Yes, thank you. I love that you said that because that's the biggest issue that I have is that with the prosperity gospel, they're feeding these people to lie that if they get the more they give to the church, then God will bless them as well. And I do believe that the more you give, the that God will bless you. But it's giving of love 
as you mentioned, right? It's giving of care, it's giving of service in that way. So it, it's been the in, <laughs> the misinterpretation of those words has is, is been very frustrating for me to see. And I, I wonder, I've asked this question several times on my show before to other people of faith, but if Jesus were alive today, do you think he, you would be, he would be surprised by the amount of followers that he has and by how he's been misinterpreted? Well, one, I mean, if Jesus were alive today, he'd be re-crucified. <laughs> that is the <laughs> truth. Wouldn't last that long. Yeah. And he'd have a difficult time getting into many churches, let alone mm. stand there long enough. Mm. To, uh, to take in some so, so much of the lies that too often are said in his name. But at the same time, he would be loving. You know, that uh, Jesus had a revolutionary patience in terms of his love and his willingness to wait for us to see and feel and act in loving ways. Yeah. See. But uh you know the second coming it's gonna be something. Probably not too far off from it, to be honest. <laughs> I can tell you that yeah. right now. Yeah. But it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a love fest. That's the thing about it. It's gonna be uh, uh over loving, overcoming by over loving. That's a benchmark of, of Christian life. And that's why, again, it makes absolutely no sense in the eyes of the world. You see, when the, when the world starts patting you on the back and elevating you, then you know you might be moving too far from the path that follows Jesus. Mm. Mm. Keep that in mind. It's like, you know, Sam Cooke, Sly Stone, and... Uh, Curtis Mayfield, all of them, love warriors at a high level, all of them artistic geniuses, never won a Grammy, but Millie Vanilli won two. <laughs> so that the, the titles and the prizes of the world never really measure the depths and the scope of a genius and a talent tied to love and tied to service to the least of these. Amen. Wise words, beautiful words. I am uh, just in awe of you, and I'm so grateful that you sat down with me for a little bit to have this important conversation. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate your willingness. And of course, to your beautiful wife, Dr. Anaita, for reaching out to me. <laughs> oh, Anaita, she uh, said, there's a special sister, Melinda. Uh, I said, oh, babe, let, let, let's check it out. And I tell you, she was absolutely right. Oh, thank she you. Was absolutely right. Thank you so much. You are a national treasure. I hope you know that. And I thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, my dear sisters. We praying for each other. Yes. Amen. 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 And to the listeners, stay tuned. We'll be back next week with Faith and Politics, part two.